Welcome to the Montgomery Community Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to grow deeper in your faith. If you'd like to learn more about MCC, you can visit our website at mcc.church. Good morning, you all. If you are new to Montgomery Community Church or you haven't had a chance to join us yet in this series, my name is Beth Guckenberger. And as Phil and his wife are enjoying their sabbatical this month, I've been walking us through the first couple of chapters of the book of Revelation where John writes to the seven churches that are along the postal route. This is week three. Week one, we talked about Ephesus and how they were known for radical love. They were rescuing babies from those city gates, freeing slaves. They built a church in the New York City of Asia Minor. Last week, we talked about Sardis. Sardis were those folks that were bold in their faith, planted their church as close as they could to the pagan temple, offered very practical forms of help as a bridge for evangelism, medical care to those that were hurting themselves. That's how Sardis, known for its boldness. And this week, we're going to talk about Laodicea. Nice light topic like Laodicea. And what we're going to do, just like the last couple of weeks, I'm going to tell you some facts, some cultural context that we don't know today in 2021 here living in Montgomery that everybody who read the letter and revelation would have been familiar with. Just to make sure that we understand the, the, the context with which John delivered the Lord's message to the church of Laodicea. So those, those little facts might not feel like they sew up together until we read the letter together at the end, but just stick with, stick with me. The first one is that Asia Minor was where the mint was. It was the most major mint in Asia Minor. Um, it was the, the banking center of the Roman Empire. And Remember we talked last week about the earthquakes that rocked that region in 17 AD and 60 AD. Everyone else who was impacted by the earthquakes reached out to, the, to Rome to ask for government assistance and rebuilding their communities except for Laodicea. They insisted on pridefully rebuilding themselves and then because they're meant, they made themselves their own coin that they circulated in their own community and on the coin was stamped this phrase, we did it ourselves. We did it ourselves speaks to their independence, their pride, what, we, what they will become known for as their fascination with wealth. They were also known for two um, products that they exported out of Laodicea, made a lot of money for them in those days. One of them was a particular kind of black wool that made very cool clothes that everybody wanted in the Roman Empire. And if you wanted that, if you wanted your clothes to be black, like it was, like was in fashion, you had to buy that wool from Laodicea. So that that demand on that product also swelled their um, their. GDP, their, their, their worth there. And they also were known for one other product that they exported, which was eye salve that was, that was written about and known as having cured blindness. Now, I, I don't think it cured blindness or we'd still have it around today, but they were, it was known for curing blindness and they would, they would mine minerals from a nearby town called Heropolis and they used the minerals from Heropolis and whatever else they did in Laodicea and they sold this eye salve and so they were known as a community that healed blindness which will be very interesting as John will talk to them about their site um, in the letter in Revelation. They were doing well and they had more than they needed. So this letter was written to an affluent culture with independent people. So I'm pretty sure whatever Jesus had to say to them, he probably could say to us today, right? 
in January of 2020, which feels like a million years ago. It was just a year and a half ago, but because of COVID, it felt like a dog year. But a year and a half ago, my husband and I were invited to travel to Davos, Switzerland, to be part of a delegation in the World Economic Forum. Um, because of my day job working with back-to-back -back ministries, we were gonna go there and talk about the work we're doing in trauma and trauma training. And I've never, I've never been to anything so fancy. I bought the fanciest clothes I've ever owned and I went to the fanciest place I'd ever been and I had the fanciest dinners I'd ever eaten with the fanciest people that I'd ever met. We had dinner with astronauts and with the people that made the Impossible Burger and with these environmental entrepreneurs who like harnessed wind and like cured everything. Like, I mean, this world leaders, like it was everywhere you went, it was just, it was really dense with some pretty impressive people. And the coaching that we got from our delegation was when you get into a conversation, have your business card ready. As soon as you find an opening, insert yourself. Turn the conversation to be about what it is that you're here to talk about. That, like, be essentially as self-promotional as you possibly can be. And because we were very much fish out of water and someone was telling us how to swim the first 36 hours, that's what we did. Every chance I could, I was telling people about us and what we've done and how cool we were and all the places we had, what we were doing. And we laid in bed the second night there and we were talking about how it didn't feel, it hadn't felt very good. It, that's, that's not the way my Bible teaches me to live and hopefully that's not the way I live the rest of my life. So like, why were we suddenly contorting ourselves into something that we weren't to be in that environment? And so Todd and I that night purposed, we, we just made a decision the next day we were gonna be ourselves. We were gonna try to be who it is that that we had become, just our own, little, our own little way. But we got still dressed up in fancy clothes and we went in, back into the fancy city and we were walking along downtown Davos and it's, the World Economic Forum is kind of hard to explain but they have all these exhibits like governments and large corporations and cool people have these big exhibits that you can walk into and get impressed. So we walked into this Johnson & Johnson exhibit, it was lovely, um, and I started talking to one of the staff there and I could tell that she was like off kilter, like something was bothering her. Like we would say in trauma training, she was like dis dysregulated. And so I was just kind of pressing in, seeing what was going on because that's how I like to live the rest of my year. And uh, she said in the middle of our conversation, do you all happen to have anything to do with biomedical innovation? And we were like, we don't have anything to do with biomedical innovation, I I'm sorry why? And she said, I have this panel that's supposed to be televised in less than 30 minutes. And one of our panelists just flaked out and, and I, I need to find a replacement for that panel. And I was just hoping you, one of you guys would have something to say. And I, we didn't have anything to say about my biomedical innovation, but we remembered the night before at dinner, we'd met someone in our little delegation. They were all friends of ours now for 36 hours. And he had, this guy had like created this eye technology that detected blindness or, or diabetes or something. It was crazy, but it definitely sounded like biomedical innovation to us. And so <laughs> I, I, I looked at Todd and we both had the same thought at the same time. And so Todd in his suit took off running downtown Davos in the middle of winter looking for this guy, like look at, find, trying to find him on his WhatsApp. And I'm like looking up the people's website and trying to sell them to these Johnson Johnson people. And she was like, sold, can you get them here in, t in 15 minutes? So Todd locates him and runs him back. And, you know, he got on the panel. Hopefully it was good for him. Hopefully it was good for J&J. Hopefully it was good for this lady. We left. I mean, I don't, I'm not really interested in biomedical innovation. So we did not stay for the panel. Later that night, we went to another one of our fancy dinners. And when we walked in, there was kind of a buzz going on 
and we realized quickly it was buzzing about us. And we were looking at each other and somebody said, hey, everyone's talking about how you helped out those guys um, today. And we just kind of laughed that night, laughed about the quality and power of the conversation we had that evening at dinner that we actually saw more things kind of happen after we decided to live the way the, our Bibles taught us to live and not the way the world was coaching us to live. Well, it's actually far more impressive to do things God's way. Doing it ourselves only ends up getting us so far. And Laodicea is going to get talked about. The church of Laodicea is going to get talked about how their desire to how they, they like to handle things on their own and not need anything from God. And it didn't work out for them and it doesn't work out for us today. And as I was preparing the message, I was thinking about the story in Genesis 22. You know, Abraham, Father Abraham, who wanted a son so very badly. And the Lord promised him a son. And then he gave him a son, Isaac. And in Genesis 22, they're on their way up a mountain. And God is going to ask Abraham to sacrifice his only son. And he gets up that mountain and the Lord's talking to him. And the Lord does not end up requiring that of him. But really what the Lord was saying to him on the side of the mountain is, I am so glad you like the gift I gave you. But here's my question. Do you like the gift more than you like the giver? And that's really the question that Laodicea is going to get asked. You got great riches and you got great gifts. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. But here's my challenge. Which one do you like more? Do you like what you have in your hands or do you like the one that gave it to you? The second fact that I want to tell you about Laodicea is its geography. It's located between two cities. One of those cities is the city of Heropolis. So this is just a funny little picture I took with my iPhone to remember. Heropolis, I always remember, has hot springs. So just like we have hot springs today, they still have hot springs in Heropolis. Um, they, they are 120 degrees. It was known as the Spa of the East. Certainly it was considered a holy land, Heropolis was, because people would come from all over to get in those waters and hope to be healed from the kind of ailments that people go to for hot springs for. If you wanted, if you wanted, if you wanted that, that healing property, you would travel to Heropolis. Meanwhile, on the other, and it was kind of down, well, kind of lateral to where Colossae is, or where Laodicea is. On the other side, up above them a little bit, is the town of Colossae. And I remember Colossae, this is a picture of Ray Vanderlaan, the, the guy that we toured with, and he's standing next to an ancient spigot. Colossae was known because it was up in the mountains a little bit higher for its cold, refreshing mountain water. It was kind of like the Evian of that area. If you were a traveler and you wanted to stop somewhere, you would make sure your stop included Colossae because they were known for refreshment. So you have Colossae up above with known for cold refreshment, Heropolis on this side known for hot healing springs, and here's Laodicea in the middle. And one thing they could not figure out how to do was to have good water because they had the cold water and the hot water mingled together in Laodicea, and their water was lukewarm. These people that had everything could not figure out how to have good water, and it drove them crazy. It'll be a bit of a sore spot that the Lord will poke on a little bit in his letter. And I think about all the like youth group, youth conferences I went to where people stood on stages and read the passage we'll read in a little bit about how Laodicea, because you are neither hot or cold but lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And I, I would hear people say, God wants you to be either for him or against him. Don't be, on, don't be wishy-washy. Don't be on the fence. Don't be lukewarm. That's not what God is saying in this passage. He doesn't want even one of us to be against him. He'll say, I don't even want one of you to perish. 
He doesn't want anyone against him. He's saying to Laodicea, you are literally known for nothing. You think you're known for something? Heropolis is known for healing. Colossae is known for refreshment. You people are lukewarm. You have lost your mission. You are known for nothing. And because you're known for nothing, you make me sick and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. When I was there, I learned a little bit about, you know, Shepherd David. Before Shepherd David became King David, he was a shepherd. And what shepherds would do when things would come to threaten the flocks they were taking care of is they would throw rocks at the, like the, whatever animal was coming to threaten the sheep and the goats they were taking care of. Shepherds are rock throwers still today. You'll find shepherds who'll throw rocks. In fact, when I lived in Mexico, we would, uh, when I would run in my neighborhood, there were a lot of stray dogs, not like the dogs that live in the pet beds in your houses, but like stray dogs. And when a dog would come at me when I was running, I always had a pocket full of rocks that I would throw at them in order to get them to go away. So that you have shepherd David who takes on the challenge of facing the Philistine giant, Goliath, and they try to put all that military armor stuff on him. At some point he sheds it like, I'm not doing that. I don't actually know how to do it. Here's what I know how to do. I know how to throw my stone. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the thing that I've always been doing, this thing I've been training for and that I'm actually good at. I'm just going to use what I already have. And so there's an expression in Israel about throwing your stone, about using what it is that you already have. And I don't have to be somebody that I'm not. I just need to do what I already know how to do, but do it now to advance the kingdom, God's kingdom and not my own. I was giving a talk about that, like about throwing our stones and asking God what he might do with our abilities and experiences and giftings and resources. And there was a kid in the front row and he was 10 years old and he interrupted me and he goes, hey, I'm actually not really that good at anything. Can I be excused? He didn't want to sit in for my like message. (laughs) And I had a 10-year-old at that time, so that he wasn't really that intimidating to me. And I'm like, oh, buddy, I bet you're good at something. He's like, no, I'm not really good at sports. I'm not really good at anything. And I'm like, well, what do you, whatever you spend all your time doing, it, then that is what you're good at. And ask God what he can do with it. And he's like, I don't do anything. I just play Xbox. I said, well, ask Jesus what he can do with your Xbox. And it was enough to keep him quiet, so he, so he listened to the rest of my message. <laughs> A few months later, we received a letter at our back-to-back offices in Mason, and inside the letter that he had written, there was a registered check for $410. He had gone back to his Indiana elementary school, and he had hosted an Xbox tournament where he had 41 participants who paid $10 apiece to, to be a part of it. He'd asked some local businesses to provide prizes that he gave away to the winners, and he, he turned that, the, that money into a check for us and he wrote me a long letter about every place that he wanted that money to be spent in Mexico and he said hey P.S. I guess God could use my Xbox and when I think about what God can do with a 10 year old and an Xbox I think about a room like this what could God do if all of a sudden we all decided to throw our stones if we said, Lord, you, you can have it. You can have my experience, my training, my giftings, my resources, everything. You, you can have everything I have, and I'm going to build a different kind of kingdom than the one the world is expecting me to. I'm going to come against the powers of darkness. I'm going to be unafraid of an enemy. I'm going I'm to literally get, like, what would, what would we be known for if we decided to all throw our stones to advance God's kingdom? The third fact I want you to, to understand about Laodicea is that they were known, they loved their gladiator games. 
In fact, um, they had an arena inside of Laodicea that seated 60,000 people. So in comparison, the Bengal Stadium is about 65,000 people. You can kind of get your head wrapped around the size of their gladiator arena. It's where the very best of the best gladiators trained. So much so that Rome decided to move their military training there. The military training camp was in Laodicea because they wanted their best soldiers to be able to have combat practice regularly against those gladiators. Because there was so much Roman military around, the folks in Laodicea were burdened by, they sat under a Roman law called Angaria. And Angaria meant that a Roman soldier could ask something of you at any time and you had no choice but to do it. So they could knock on your door and ask you to make them a meal and no matter what was happening, no matter how much money you had, no matter what you were in the middle of, you had to stop and provide them with a meal. Angaria is also that they, if, if a Roman soldier asked you to carry their backpack, you had no choice. You had to carry the backpack. No matter what you were doing or what else you were holding or where you were headed, you had to carry a soldier's backpack. It's why, just as a side note, Jesus would say, if your enemy asks you to carry your pack a mile, then do it too. Because now you won't be compulsory. Instead, it will be out of service. He was trying to flip that switch. Angaria came to be known as compulsory service, our task grudgingly undertaken by the one forced to perform it. What's so interesting about Laodicea is almost everybody else would regularly write to Rome petitioning them to reverse this law because it was such a burden on their people and there is no record of Laodicea ever complaining. It was not too much because they can do it themselves, the very prideful. And while we're talking about gladiator games, I, wanted, I don't want to miss the opportunity to tell you about one of my favorite characters in history. He's an Asian monk named Telemachus. I don't know if you know his story. Uh, the first writings about Telemachus were by Theodore, the bishop of Cyrus in Syria, 393 AD. The story I'm going to tell you happened in 370 AD, but there was a, and I, I'm just pretty much beg you to use your imagination because it looks better in your head than it will out of my mouth. Just imagine what I'm saying in your mind's eye when I'm talking. But this man, Telemachus, was an Asian monk and he woke up one day and he felt like the Lord gave him a vision or a dream. He was to walk to Rome. So not to Laodicea, but to somewhere similar to Laodicea. He was to walk to Rome. So this is not like, this is not like the Lord telling us to walk to Loveland. Like this, this would have been quite a journey. He got to Rome and he saw the gladiator games for the first time. Imagine seeing the gladiator games for the first time. You have animals killing people and people killing people and way worse yet, tens of thousands of people delighting in it and considering it entertainment or sport. And Theodore writes that when Telemachus saw people cheering on the death of other human beings, he couldn't stand it any longer. And he stormed into the arena and then down into the sand. It says, when the abdominal spectacle was being exhibited, he went himself into the stadium, stepping down into the sand arena. He endeavored to stop the men who were wielding their weapons against one another. So just imagine if you were watching this, you're part of that it's Bengal Stadium, and you're watching these men down there fight to the death. Then this little Asian monk comes down in the middle of the sand. Here's what he says. Interposing himself between the combatants, he faced the crowd and said this as loud as he could. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, I command these wicked games to cease. Do not requite God's mercy by shedding innocent blood. And there are two versions in history of what happens next. We know that Telemachus died instantly. 
Some people have recorded that what happened was one of the gladiators irritated that he interrupted their game, immediately stabbed him and he died. And some people believe that the, the onslaught of goblets and daggers and fruit that started being thrown at him from people who didn't want their sport to be interrupted essentially stoned him to death. And we don't really know exactly how he died. We just know that he died immediately. And it's recorded that as soon as Telemachus died, the angry cries of the crowd died away into a profound silence in the arena. When the emperor was informed of this, he numbered Telemachus in the number of victorious martyrs, and he he put an end to that impious spectacle. And according to John Fox in his famous book of martyrs, wrote, from that day on, from the day that Telemachus fell dead in the Colosseum, no other fight of gladiators was ever held there. Like so much power. They would... Like, how did that happen? And I promised you at the beginning of the month that I would teach you a bunch of Hebrew words, but I want to teach you a Spanish word, actually. The word is basta. It's like pasta with a B, basta. It's a combination of, we don't have it really in English, a translation for it. It's a combination of the word stop and enough. So you hear a lot of moms saying it, right? Like, basta. Like, stop in the backseat fighting. Like, means no more. And I think the Lord was looking down on Rome and on those gladiator games and he was like, basta. Stop killing each other. Stop being delighted and entertained and gambling and, and st- stop. Stop with that. The Second Chronicles, I think it's 16, says the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth searching for those whose hearts are completely his. I think he was like, oh, I have I am done with these gladiator games. I'm done with this evil. Basta. Now, who is it that can partner with me to make him stop? Who is it that can partner? Okay, you, Telemachus, you go down there. And I think the Lord, he looked down and he's, he's, he's looking down on us on 2021 and he's like, basta. You people, basta. Stop. Stop judging each other. Stop isolating. Stop collecting things. Stop hurting each other. I am looking for people willing to depend on me. I'm looking for people who are willing to throw their stone and build my kingdom and lay their gifts down. Stop. I've actually made you for more. I've made you for more. Todd and I were a um, foster parents for about 10 years to teenage girls. He called that part of our house the den of estrogen. We had usually three, four, five, six of them there at a time. And two of them were, um, wow, one of them in particular was more challenging than really all the rest of them combined. And uh, we had her for a number of years. When she was 15, she prayed to receive the Lord as her Savior, which was amazing. I remember telling Todd, the Lord is coming any day now. It is imminent because it is finished. Like, I cannot believe this happened. And it wasn't like everything got better after she came to know the Lord, but the tables did level a little while as she became my sister in Christ. But The year after that, when she was 16, thanks to the internet, some extended family members found us. And I I want you to hear this loud and clear. Back to Back is a huge fan of family reunification. In fact, that's much of the work we do right now is helping kids get back into families that they should have never been separated from in the first place. But in this particular situation, as this extended family member was calling us, threatening to get the girls out of our home and back into theirs, I recognized and realized that what they wanted the girls to become engaged in was frankly nefarious. And I knew that 
that in this particular case, my God-given responsibility and privilege was to protect them from that danger and not facilitate it. So my strategy, as sophisticated as it was, is every time they called, I just pretty much hung up on them. And then one day they called on a Monday, and it, I could tell everything had escalated a little bit. And they told me that on Friday they were coming and they were bringing the authorities and they were going to separate us and, and take the girls out of our home until someone in a court of law could determine where it is that girls were going to live. So I still hung up on them, but this time I was a little afraid. And I, I called the woman who had cared for them. They had been in our home for a number of years, but before that they had lived in a children's home and the director of that children's home had become a mentor of mine. She, her name was Martha and I called her and I'm like, my gosh, they called and they said they're coming on Friday and they're gonna take the girls away. And I, and I don't know what to do and here's what, I, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get every visitor log nobody ever signed at your children's home. I want you to get every medical record, educational record, picture they drew for your refrigerator. We're gonna get a bunch of stuff together. If somebody wants to go to court, let's hold it on Friday at my house. And she's, um, she was about 80 at the time, maybe just late 70s, cool as a cucumber. In fact, the way that I described her sometimes is she was someone, I don't know if you know anyone like this, but she has walked with God so faithfully over such a long period of time that when I was with her, I liked to just like rub up against her, which is not how discipleship happens, but it didn't matter. Like this is like, I just, I wanted like whatever she had to come into me, right? So I called her and I was like, hey, listen to me, will you do this? And, and she was like, I'll, I'll be there on Friday. That's great. Then I spent about 20, 25 hours that week amassing various government documents and records so that if somebody wanted to come and threaten us on Friday, I would be ready for them. She arrived about a half an hour before everybody else on Friday and asked me to help her with a heavy bag in her back seat, which I thought was a great thing because I had my own kind of heavy bag sitting in the house and I'm like, I'm going to put yours right next to mine. And I settled her into the dining room with the girls and then about 30 minutes later, these people came to our house and the best way I can describe it to you on a morning like this morning is they were like an angry mob of bees. They got out of the car and they were like swarming and swearing and, and shouting and threatening and it was just like obnoxious. And I was like, hi, I'm Beth, welcome to Back to Back. Would you like some iced tea? They weren't even acknowledging me really. It just, just all worked up. And so I was like, I just started walking to my house and they followed me and our houses are made out of concrete like cement. So the acoustics are crazy and they got in the house and everything, they saw the girls for the first time and just everything ratcheted up a notch and they were screaming and shouting and swearing and I could, I could not get control of the room. So I stood on my own dining room chair and I yelled at the top of my lungs, I think Martha has something she'd like to say. And everybody's like, wow. And they look over at Martha and I'm sending her a message like, I know we were gonna end with the visitor log because that's our most powerful piece of evidence, but let's start there. Like I'm just sending her this like eyeball message, like get it out right now. She looks at me like, I got what you're saying. And she reaches into her bag and she pulls out her Bible, which these people do not share our faith. I'm like, you, you, you are confused what, what meeting you have come to. <laughs> but, and she opens up her Bible and um, you know, just quietly starts to read out a Psalm 1 about a tree planted by streams of water and in season it bears fruit. It's a lovely Psalm and I don't care what your faith is. Some like 80 year old woman starts to read her Bible in front of you. You are afraid of the lightning bolt. So you just get quiet, right? So everybody was just listening to her read Psalm 1 and I can remember thinking, I literally would have never thought of that as a way to get control of the room. But now that you have it, get the visitor log. She finishes Psalm 1, doesn't even take a breath, goes into Psalm 2, which is not nearly as quotable about why the nations conspire and plot and feign. She finishes Psalm 2, reads Psalm 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. At this point, 
The girls and I are kind of slumped back in our chairs. I, I was thinking to myself, because I like political things, she's like in a spiritual filibuster. Like, there are a <laughs> ton of psalms in this book. At some point, these people are going to have to go to the bathroom. They're going to get hungry. Like, she gets into Psalm 10, and I could tell her voice was changing. Like, she was landing somewhere, and she gets to the end of Psalm 10, and it says, You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them, and you listen to their cry. Defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of this earth may terrify us no more. And she closed her Bible and she said, these little girls don't belong to us any more than they belong to you. They are daughters of the King Most High. You ask them where their dad has told them to be. And the big one, even in Christ, is still feisty. And she was like, a key, which means right here. And the little one's like, a key. And I'd be misrepresenting the story if I told you those people stood up and shook my hand and thanked me for years of service. That did not happen. (laughs) But they did push away from the table and stand up and kind of start all over again with the chanting and ranting and swearing and screaming and threatening. And they were saying all kinds of things I never really wanted those little girls to hear. But they were saying them as they were kind of backing up to my door. So I went around them and I opened it. And they're shouting as they head for their car. And they get in their car. And I'm like opening up the gate in our ministry campus. Those people went flying out of that campus. And I'm shutting that gate thinking to myself, you have got to be kidding me that I was in a government office for 25 hours this week getting this thing ready. And she reads 10 Psalms and they're gone. So I'm ready to go run in the house. And I'm like, you did it. You did it. You did it. You did it. You you did it. You did it. I'm like going to rub up against her like the whole thing. But she wanted me to know for sure she did not do anything. And she got her Bible, which is a lot bigger than this one, stuck that thing right up in my face and said, don't you ever forget this. This is the only sword we ever take into battle. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah, she's a... Oh, my sweet friend Martha went home to be with the Lord last week, and I think of her now in our great cloud of witnesses. And she's telling me, don't you ever forget, don't be like the Laodiceans who thinks they did it all themselves. That's not where our power comes from. So let's read this letter to a bunch of independent, self-sufficient, known-for-nothing Christians that live in Laodicea, right? Open up our Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. He's like pushing right on their sore spot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Be known for something. You have lost your mission. You are known for nothing. You say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. He's not concerned with the balance in their bank account. It's not ever going to be about the gift. It's about how, what do they like more, the gift or the giver? And I love that he threw in the thing there about naked because they were very proud of their black wool clothes. You think you're dressed in the finest? You are literally naked. And those harsh words are... Those harsh words were said out of love because he wants them to turn away from that. He wants to literally rescue them from that life. 
And I'm, I'm telling you, I want to testify to you. I have met rich people who never seem to have enough and poor people who are crazy generous. He does not care about the dollars. He cares about how we feel about those dollars. That's what he's talking about. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. You want to know where real riches come from? They come from me. So you can become rich and white clothes to wear. I mean, I think I'm just like smiling. Like he's like, you like your black clothes? I got better clothes. They're white. So you can cover your shameful nakedness and then salve to put on your eyes so you can see. You think you're healing blindness? You're the blindest people I know. You think you're dressed? Here comes the loving part, I promise. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. It is absolutely out of love he gives them this challenge. So be earnest and repent. He'll say it every week to every church. Repent. There's still time. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice. So they've been hearing knocking doors for a while. That's on Garia. But he's like, this is different. This is not like I'm putting it on you. This is like, invite me in. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and I'll eat with you and you with me. This is, this is about partnership. This is not about the way the Romans treated them. They were very familiar with door knocking and meal preparing. This is a different. He's like, my kingdom is completely different than what you are looking around and seeing. You throw the stone, I'll make the impact. Or better yet, I'll give you the stone, then you throw it, then I'll make the impact. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on the throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We have ears this morning, will we listen? Will you stand with me as we close in prayer? And like I said last week, you do whatever you want with your body. You raise your hands, you clasp them together, you put them out, you, you hold the hand of the person you came with. God is not looking at our bodies. He's looking at the posture of our heart. The eyes of the Lord is looking all over the earth, searching for those whose hearts are completely his. Posture your heart in front of him. So he would know that you are completely his. Let's address the giver of all good gifts and thank him. Jesus, may we as a church be known for something. Whether we're co-laboring and partnering with you in healing or co-laboring and partnering with you in refreshing or co-laboring and partnering with you in advancing or stopping evil and, 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 and spreading your kingdom and sharing your goodness. Lord Jesus, you, you the giver of all good things, we pick you above all else. We do not do this ourselves. We do not want to live our own way. We refuse to be independent. We, Jesus, we love you and trust you and honor you. And it is with the authority that I have as a co-heir with you together here with my spiritual siblings that we, I ask for an announcing and I, an anointing and I, I declare to you that we hear you saying, Basta, it's time. It's time for the, for the church to rise up. It's time for us to go out. It's time, Lord Jesus. You can have us. You can have all of us. Every stone we have in our pocket, we will throw to your, to your glory and for your kingdom. And it is, with, it is with that promise 
that we recognize church is not a place that we come. Church is a people that we are. So as your bride, we ask you, Lord Jesus, come and fill us with all, all that you are, more to the brim. And I ask all these things in the holy and precious and resurrected name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can stay connected throughout the week by following Montgomery Community Church on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about MCC, visit our website at mcc.church.